You're welcome, Neil. This yes. is hell. I see. Thousands of protesters have put a nation's capital on lockdown, closing off the city from the rest of their country in what could be seen as a siege. And no, we are not talking about what happened in Washington, D.C. last week. In November of 2020, last year, hundreds of thousands took to the streets of India's capital, New Delhi, and they have not left, with tens of thousands still occupying a stretch, a 10-mile stretch of highway, as well as all the main entry points to the city. This all dates back to protests that began back in July against three new proposals by the government of Prime Minister Modi to privatize the agriculture sector in India, which is currently protected from the free market by a set of laws, including price minimums that keep the lives of already poverty and debt-stricken farmers from actually getting unbelievably worse. 70% of India's population is dependent upon agriculture for their livelihoods. And of the farmers, two-thirds of their farms are on less than two and a half acres, making both their lives and livelihoods incredibly vulnerable. With the Prime Minister's close friends being wealthy owners of India's biggest agriculture concerns that could benefit from the new laws, it's no wonder the farmers are worried that the whole thing is a plan for these giant conglomerates to come in and take their land from them. Another problem is agriculture is culture in India. So you take their land, you take their culture too. We'll find out what exactly is going on in India in a few minutes when we speak with lawyer and farmer activist Avik Saha, National General Secretary of Swaraj India, a political party whose mission is, as their website swarajindia.org states, to usher in probity, transparency, and accountability in electoral politics. Follow Swaraj India on Twitter at underscore Swaraj India. Avik is also national convener of Jai Kisan Andalan, an All India Farmers and Farm Workers Organization, and an organizing secretary at All India Kisan Sangharsh Coordination Committee, an All India Platform of Farmers and Farm Workers Organizations. Find out more about that group at AIK. SCC on Twitter. And you can also follow Avik on Twitter at Avik Saha India. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? And over the holidays, I was introduced to something that I'd never had before. And I'm curious if you have, because you are far more knowledgeable about food than I am and experimental too. Have you ever had yuca? Because I had mashed yuca, Y-U-C-A, not with two C's, one C, instead of mashed potatoes over the holidays. And they were fantastic. Yeah, yuca rules. Uh, Speaking of being more knowledgeable or uh, experimental about food, you ever find yourself at a fast food establishment wearing a t-shirt of that fast food establishment? That's disturbing. <laughs> I can only assume it was Wolfie's. Uh, actually, it was Superdog. Almost <laughs> got me there. I do have a Wolfie's shirt. Uh, by the way, Superdog, I know a lot of people think it's overrated because it's so popular. It is one of the best hot dog stands in the whole city of Chicago. You'd think it's, it would just be overrated because everybody talks about it because of the sign out front, you know, the dancing wieners on the top of the building, but it really is fantastic. Have you ever tried the drive up where they come out to your car and they deliver your food to you like old uh, car hops did in the 50s? Uh, yeah, so I did for dinner last night. Oh, really? I've and never... the car hops are uh, gone uh, by the way of COVID, I think. Oh, really? So you just sit in your car without a uh, tray. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh uh, one other thing. So uh, my kid wanted to know, Chuck, do you like rainbows? I do like rainbows. Why does he ask? Okay, I'll just let him know that. All right, thank you, because uh, I'm sure he's concerned right now. Probably lost sleep over it last night. You probably lost sleep over it last night. My weekend was blissfully boring. A few memories of the weekend other than I think there was some food involved at some point. There was a lot of sleeping, I know that. And lying on ice packs, heating pads, eating pain relievers like candy. And I want to thank the good people at Wild Folk Farms of Benton, Maine, for again sending completely unsolicited their CBD's extra strength therapeutic whatever salve, I guess it is, because it does help. Or at least I think it does. Or maybe I've convinced myself that it does. But whatever. 
Whenever I have back spasms, the pain seems to quickly subside shortly after I apply the balm. So again, thanks to the folks at Wild Folks Farm. More importantly, Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is... What how, much get- ch- how much is Chuck being paid by Wild Folk Farms? <laughs> uh, what are they going to name the austerity bill? What are they going to name the austerity bill? It's got to be something the opposite of austerity, right? So it's got to be the people helping people bill or something like that. This week's question from hell again is what are they going to call the, what are they going to name the austerity bill? What are they going to name the austerity bill? And again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer in by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Alex will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, the question from hell is, what are they going to name the austerity bill? Thanks to everyone who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support over the weekend. If you go to thisishell.com and click on support, you can see all the ways you can help out your friends here at This Is Hell, including how to get any and all of our This Is Hell merchandise. Thanks for the support over this weekend. Goes out to Michael S. and Nick E. Thanks so much for your very kind donations. And thanks again to Michael and Nick. Thanks to all of you for your incredible support. Again, if you want to support thisishell.com and be thanked here on air, go to thisishell.com and click on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is... Radiohead, a hot bath, and reflexology. I don't like any of those things. <laughs> On Friday, The Guardian ran the article, Readers Hangover Cures, 10 Ways to Beat the Post-Booze Blues from Radiohead to Roll Mop Vinegar. In it, they quote art- uh, they quote writer Christabel Stevens explaining, I no longer drink, but my fail-safe hangover cure used to be tea with honey, dry toast, and a long bath, and as hot as you can bear. Then play Radiohead's 2001 album Amnesiac quietly while pinching, while firmly pinching the pressure point between your thumb and your index finger. It's important to note this doesn't work with anything else from Radiohead's discography <laughs> that makes this week's Hangover Cure, Radiohead, a hot bath and squeezing that pressure point between your thumb and index finger. And if you want to continue your hangover, just listen to Coldplay. Putting profits before people since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to contribute to our horrible business model of putting people before profits, you can go to thisishell.com and click on support to find all the ways to help out your friends here at Completely Listener Supported. This is hell. One way you can contribute is to become a subscriber to the This is Hell Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. That Patreon podcast happens every Friday live at 10 a.m. Chicago time and podcast shortly after. If you sign up to our Patreon podcast, you become a subscriber, you will get not only this past week's brand new monologue as well as a classic interview that is not available anywhere else online but you'll get like about 150 somewhere between 150 and 200 extra podcasts and it's almost like an entire extra year of this is hell with monologues by me and classic interviews again that you cannot find anywhere else online but on patreon if you are not yet a subscriber on this past friday's patreon podcast i had kind of a and i guess i told you so moment about last wednesday's Forceful entry, vandalization, and looting of the U.S. Capitol in an attempt to stop the counting of the Electoral College votes in hopes of overturning last November's election and keeping President Trump in power against the will of the electorate of voting citizens. But it was only kind of an I told you so moment because I did not need to tell you so because you already knew that last Wednesday's events were the likely outcome of a president flirting with inciting violence and commending those who were clearly doing dry runs of what would likely be violence, deadly violence, if Trump was not reelected or lost by a razor-thin margin. You already knew that no matter how small or large Trump's loss would be, he was going to challenge the vote as too close to call or too big to be believable. More importantly, despite what the media has been insisting, what politicians have been repeating ad nauseum since the Capitol was breached, that while media and politicians were insisting this is not America, you know this is America. This is exactly what has become after a 40-plus year corporate project to delegitimize self-governance. 
This is what the United States has become. This is the outcome of the United States in thrall with American exceptionalism and innocence, two myths that perpetuate the kind of hate-filled violence we saw last week. We also shared an interview from 10 years ago with the economist Richard Wolff, who had just posted articles at The Guardian headlined, Bonuses for Bankers, Bankruptcy for Public Services, The Myth of American Exceptionalism Implodes, and 2011, Calling Time on Capitalism. It's all a reminder that while the critique of capitalism has changed, ever so slightly, more than anything after 10 years. It's pretty much stayed the same, but you can only hear how the U.S. capital siege is America and how the more things change, the more they stay the same by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks for joining us as our newest subscribers on Patreon goes out to Chris, Fig, and Tyler. Thanks, Chris, Fig, and Tyler for joining us here, or joining us at patreon.com slash thisishell. You are here, and this is hell, and I know this is hell because the people who stormed the U.S. Capitol building last Wednesday vandalized it, looted it, ransacked it. The premises who, with many armed carrying anything from clubs to spears to guns, attempted to stop the electoral process to install as the nation's leader the candidate they supported. I know this is hell because those fellow citizens are patriots. Or at least they believe they are, and if you are going to understand even in the slightest way who the people are and what their motivations were last Wednesday, you must keep in mind that they see themselves as patriots. I know it doesn't make sense. How can you claim to be a patriot, a person who vigorously supports their country and is prepared to defend it against enemies or detractors, and then invade and occupy an institution of that government, of that country? Sadly, it's incredibly easy to understand how someone would call themselves a patriot and then roam the halls of the U.S. Capitol in what appears to have been a concerted attempt to physically intimidate a branch of government into unconstitutionally overturning an election. From a very early age here in the U.S., we are indoctrinated into a patriotic belief system through our K-12 through history curriculum. We are not taught how to understand U.S. history, how how to figure out the mistakes we have made to make certain we do not repeat those mistakes and determine our successes so we can repeat those successes. The goal of early history teaching is to make us patriots first, immersing students in the myths and historic denialism of American exceptionalism and innocence. That's why they believe they are patriots while destroying the office of the Speaker of the House and and chanting, Hang Mike Pence. They believe that history, that brainwashed nonsense that conservatives have imposed on young minds, since an early age, that deludes children into an uncritical reading of U.S. history. And when that uncritical reading of U.S. history gets challenged, they view their rewritten propagandistic history as being revised by political correctness instead of what it is, a more accurate reading of history. And you can't blame them for their reprogramming and their inability to overcome a belief in American exceptionalism and innocence. We are all victims of an education system that teaches us how to live a life in denial of our nation's past, which prepares us for a life of being able to deny climate change. In fact, climate change deniers have a word for the inaccurate belief that people caused global warming as, here's that term, climatism. They are patriots because they believe they are patriots, as we have created a culture to so steeped in denialism that we have the uncanny ability to deny the reality that exists right in front of us. We are raised in denialism. We are trained to be denialists. We were told that if we deny, deny, and deny our past, we will be rewarded with good grades in history classes. And being told we've done a good job, a service to our country, true patriots because of a refusal to acknowledge the history of genocide, slavery, racism, and institutionalized white supremacy and privilege that have undermined this experiment in democracy from its very beginning. No, patriotism is not going to save us from the violence that is inevitable, as so many people in the Democratic Party believe it will. And any calls for patriotism to save us from that inevitable violence will not only be futile, but likely counterproductive. Remember, during the next act of violence, and there will be many more acts of worse violence, that the people conducting that violence see themselves as patriotism. Patriotism, what got us here in the first place. Once we wrap our heads around that concept, we'll have a better understanding that, yes, this 
is America, and this is hell. Coming up, a protest has locked down a nation's capital. We'll also have rotten history and tell you what's happening on the rest of this week's episodes of This Is Hell, airing Monday through Thursday live here at thisishell.com at 10 a.m. Chicago time, and then on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell on Fridays at 10 a.m. as well. Capitalism is the virus, and this is hell. Since November, thousands upon thousands of India's farmers have been protesting the government of Prime Minister Modi's plan to eliminate protections from impoverished farmers that help them eke out what living they can, only to be replaced by neoliberal market reforms that will leave vulnerable farmers even more vulnerable to the demands of corporate profits. Here to help us better understand exactly what is happening in India, lawyer and farmer activist Avik Saha is National General Secretary of Swaraj India, a political party whose mission is, as their website swarajindia.org states, to usher in probity, transparency, and accountability in electoral politics. Swaraj India was founded on October 2nd, 2016 on the National Farmers Strike. You can follow Swaraj India on Twitter at underscore Swaraj India, and you can find out more about Avik on Twitter at Avik Saha India. Welcome to This Is Hell, Avik, and thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for rescheduling to be with us and our condolences for the loss in your family. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's great to be in This Is Hell. (laughs) Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You know, I have dozens of questions written down for you, and just now while I was reading your uh, pro- your biography, I just I think the best place for us to start is to determine how good are the protections that India's farmers are trying to save from the policies of Prime Minister Modi? How well are the Indian farmers already protected with the kinds of protections that they have? Are these effective protections and should we see the model that is protecting India's farmers as a success and something that doesn't need any more attention or any kind of reform? Uh, uh, If you look at India's economic history post-independence, there are three distinct phases. The socialist phase, mixed economy phase, and now we have the neoliberal phase. Uh, It's not that the current political party in power, the BJP, the Bharatiya Janata Party, is the first to deal with reforms and try to deform the country in the name of reform. Uh, The previous uh, political party, the Indian National Congress that got India its independence uh, was very much at the game. It started in 1991. But the issue is that through these three economic phases, one thing Indian policymakers understood, recognized, and respected that India, for its uh, geoclimatic advantages, will always be a great food producing country, which is why agriculture is the means of livelihood for 70% people. Uh, This statistics is often challenged, but uh, if you look at farmers only, those who cultivate land, then it's roughly around 50%, but more than 20%, including street vendors, are directly connected to farm produce and they make their livelihoods out of it. So 70% of the country is dependent on this particular segment of economy, and every government has been careful while dealing with it. This government, the uh, current central government uh, of BJP, chose the height of corona to introduce agricultural reform. In a show today, uh, eminent economist of the right told me that it is only in uh, crisis situations that reforms work great. I don't know where he got that from, but uh, this government chose to bring in these so-called reforms through what we in India call ordinances. These are not laws passed by parliament, but are issued by the government because parliament is not in session. And down the line, they were converted into laws, 
and not one farmer organization was consulted in these three laws, which clearly state in their objects and reasons that these laws are for welfare of farmers. What I don't understand about these new proposals and about Modi's position is if so many people are involved in farming and this would have a deleterious effect upon the farm, the lives of farmers, what politically explains why he would impose such reforms on farmers that would undermine their ability to have a stable, sustainable livelihood. It, it just doesn't seem to make sense to me politically. It would seem like you are, you're, you're ostracizing 70% of the population. So why would Modi apply such reforms that would seem to lead to creation, creating a gigantic opposition? Very interesting question. And this is completely India-specific and India-centric. India is divided on lines of religion forever. And Modi found the key to that door. He figured that he could win elections using the Hindu majority card, just like white supremacy in the US. And that's where the rub lies. Once he figured that he can win election without performing, without uh, accountability, he went into a wild rampage. And that's what uh, dared him, you know, that's what gave him the courage to take on the farmers. Because even internally, as we speak, I, I will be the first to admit that farmers are divided in lines of religion, in lines of region. India, you know, is a mega country. It has 18 official languages, six uh, agroclimatic zones. It has numerous crops. So it's easy to divide farmers. And uh, Mr. Modi decided that with religion on his side, he will take on the farmers, uh, divided as they are, and challenge their livelihood. He, these laws, in very simple words, are to corporatize and monopolize agricultural production, distribution, trade, and retailing. It's one long chain. Imagine, uh, to give an easy contextual example, Facebook makes your broccoli in a farm and sends it right up to your plate. So Facebook can do whatever it wants with your broccoli. It can charge you $10 for the broccoli. If you, and if you don't pay, well, you go without it. Now, if this was fancy food, it would be okay. But we, India, produces rice and wheat, paddy and wheat are the main cereal crops and the staple food of 95% people in this country. These things needed to be corporatized and, uh, they, and uh, there's no problem in naming them. The, there are two companies, the two corporate houses, the Ambani's who own the brand called Reliance and Geo and the Adani's who are into massive infrastructure. They own 35 airports now. This government has actually been running from them right from the beginning. Uh, your audience in the U.S. will not know, but Mr. Modi made it very clear. The day he was uh, sworn in, he did not live in Delhi. He lived in Ahmedabad, which is about 1,000 miles from Delhi. He flew to his swearing-in in an aircraft belonging to the Adani Group of Industries. So he told the whole nation, this is the guy I'm working for. In 2016, Reliance, the Ambani's, uh, launched mobile services called Geo. They used Mr. Modi's picture in a front page jacket advertisement in 10,000 newspapers of this country. And Mr. Modi was, did not flinch. So the, this country has been receiving a message for the last seven years that he's been in power that I work for the Ambani's, I work for the Adani's, but you have to vote for me because I represent the interest and I represent the protection of the majority Hindu community. So this is the electoral gambit and this is why he thought he can take on the farmers. Well, things are a little different now. Is this, because uh, I, I don't want to 
oversimplify anything, and I think that there's probably always more complex or complicated answer to it. Is is this simply then driven by Modi's cronyism? Because as the New York Times notes, uh, several protesting farmers who were interviewed in late November spoke of their fear of being swallowed up by corporate titans such as Mukesh Ambani, India's richest man, and Gautam Adani, who is not far behind, both known as to be very close to Mr. Modi. So is this just merely greed and trying to rip off the Indian coffers, or is there something more than that? Let's look at the four business sectors Mr. Adani and Mr. Ambani work in. It's petrochemicals, telecommunication, now they want to get into food. So this is Mr. Ambani's empire. I don't see the sun setting on any of these businesses in the modern world that we live in. Mr. Adani, on the other hand, has gone for infrastructure, ports, airports, roads, everything. He is also in the uh, 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 grain storage business. So it's clear that these laws were made so that these people can have monopoly control over the food business. Now, the problem with India is not just its farmers and the 70% people I refer to. By the way, that's uh, 90 crore. How, many is, how much is that in billions? Uh, well, 10 million to a crore. So we're talking about 900 million people who are dependent on agriculture directly for their livelihood. But besides this, we have uh, approximately 60% of the country dependent on government-provided food. It's called the PDS system, public distribution system. So every week, they go to the local PDS shop and they will pick up their cereal and grain. It's something like food stamps. In India, we actually physically give out the food and not stamps. And uh, this whole system will come into their control. They want to be monopoly suppliers to the government for its PDS. They want to be monopoly producers. They want to be monopoly distributors. And they want to be monopoly retail outlets. So you have Reliance Fresh uh, all over the country. I think they have more than a 1,000 outlets. And if these laws are allowed to be implemented, uh, well, the only place you'll be able to buy your food perhaps will be a Reliance Fresh Mart or a mall. So it's chronic capitalism all the way. But is this the BJP party? Uh, my personal analysis is a little different from uh, my colleagues in India. I see there are two BJP parties. One which is 80 years old, believes that uh, India should be a Hindu nation, and has been pushing this agenda for that many years. The other is the BJP, which Mr. Modi has sprung. So there is an alliance between these two BJPs. The other BJP, the, the, the religion-driven BJP, was never uh, being able to keep to power, keep power. I mean, they came to power once in uh, 2000, uh, 1999, but they just couldn't retain it because even if Hindu, uh, Hindus are a majority in this country, for them, for the you know, 30% of the population that are below the poverty line, food livelihood is much more important than religion. So these two BJPs have formed an alliance. Mr. Modi has promised uh, power, electoral power, through the support of the corporate houses that he represents. And in turn, the, uh, the religious BJP has uh, got this opportunity to spread its uh, rabid uh, Hinduism. And it's called Hindutva, actually, which is not Hinduism. Hinduism is a much... Uh, much more uh, interpretive and uh, a far saner word. So these are the two forces within that organization that are working in tandem. And of course, Mr. Modi has been working openly, as I gave examples, for the corporate sector. And he's not ashamed about it at all. What you're describing when it comes to dividing the farmers it sounds like a colonial project of divide and conquer. How much is the Modi government acting like a colonial project? And, and does neoliberalism lead to governments acting like the colonial occupiers of their own nation? That's exactly what has happened. 
you've expressed it very, very succinctly. India is now being internally colonized by her own people. So the poor can remain poor and should be happy remaining Hindu poor. The farmers will not get price for their crops, but they cannot protest. And it is the rich and the trickle-down economy that will reach some, and we will write tomes of economic uh, reports and surveys on that, on how good India is. Again, an example from today. Somebody said that, you know, the 1991 moment for India, when we embraced uh, neoliberalism and free markets in industry. And uh, I just told the gentleman that uh, six months ago, when about, uh, uh, when about 25 million people were walking 400 miles back to their home during lockdown, you should have met them and told them that the 1991 moment is the great moment for India. And that's why you must walk back home. You've lost employment. You have no transportation. Your government doesn't want to take you back home because your employer, when things are okay, will want you back. So you stay back in the ghetto of the city. So overall, Mr. Modi's policies are pushing Indians to become poorer and has and a few select less than a dozen Indians to be richer. I just want to share one statistics with you. In these seven years, it's going to be seven soon, that Mr. Modi has been in power. Mr. Ambani's personal wealth has grown 118%. Mr. Adani's wealth has grown 121%. If these were seven good years for business, let's look at some two other people who are far longer in business than both of them. The Godrej family's wealth has grown only 3% in seven years. And there is uh, another house called the Shapurjis, who've actually gone down 36%. So crony capitalism is there written on the wall in big letters for everyone to see. And what's worse is that you have to accept it without protest. That's the hell that India has become. The New York Times also reported uh, on about the criticism of protesters that this was the same, uh, this kind of anti-national charge many of Mr. Modi's uh, supporters levied against protesters who spoke out last year in 2018 and earlier in 20 or 2019 and earlier in 2020 against a contentious new citizenship law that blatantly discriminated against Muslims. Those protests were much bigger and spread across the country. Do the two protests from 2019 and 2020, do they have anything in common? Was this uh, protest against the citizenship laws, is this in any way linked to the kind of protests that we're seeing right now when it comes to farming reforms? Uh, it's, it's a similar protest, according to me. One was uh, to strengthen electoral base, but based on hate, and the other is to strengthen a corporate base based on bluff. The citizenship laws have been specifically created to delegitimize Muslims, as you've rightly mentioned. But it's not that uh, any Muslim can be pushed out of India. Where will they go and who will take them? Mr. Modi knows that. The whole idea is to create uh, uh, 20% of the population, Muslims are approximately that, to be second-class citizens. It's like we are going back to the cotton era in the U.S., where they can be our slaves. So it's a, it's a large-scale enslavement of a very, very large but minority segment of the population. The same objective... I'm sorry, yes, you wanted to say No, go something. ahead, go ahead, go ahead. The same objective is sought to be achieved through the farm amendments, farm laws. You see, when Mr. Adani and Ambani capture the production end of farming, millions of farmers will be out of job, will be out of profession, out of vocation. And they will provide the cheap labor to the factories that... Uh, Again, these same business houses want to set up. So as I said, a whole 
very large segment of the population is being compulsorily impoverished. It's as if their wealth, their ability to think of a future is being confiscated. And uh, a few, very few, select few are going to gain from this exercise. We are speaking with lawyer and farmer activist Avik Saha. He is also a national convener of J. Kassan Andalan, an All India Farmers and Farm Workers Organization, and organizing secretary at All India Kassan Sangarsh Coordination Committee and All India Platform of Farmers and Farm Worker Organizations. We have direct links to all of those organizations right now at our website. The New York Times reported yesterday that the protesters are occupying a 10-mile stretch of highway and have created a kind of community on that highway. They also mentioned that most protesters are Sikh. Is that true? And why are most protesters Sikh? Is it simply because many farmers are Sikh? And what would explain why so many farmers are Sikh? Uh, uh, This is a complicated question for an American audience to understand, but I'll try. Uh, Sikhs come from a state called Punjab. Punjab is a fertile um, state, and uh, it's an agricultural, mainly agricultural state. They're also very enterprising people. They're the people who wear the turbans. They produce a very large portion of the rice and wheat of this country. And the government procurement, remember I spoke about public distribution system, the government procurement takes place very largely in Punjab. And the farmers there get what what is known as the minimum support price or the MSP, which the government announces every year. So it is the farmers of Punjab who first understood that these so-called reform laws will dismantle the the procurement system and their assurance of MSP which have made the Punjab, the Sikh farmers, that's S-I-K-H, Sikh farmers, uh, comparatively wealthier than the rest of the farmers in India. But the rest of the farmers of India do not even get MSP and do not dream of getting MSP. So those who are going to suffer from these laws today are out in the forefront, the vanguard of this struggle. But the rest of the country, every farmer dreams of getting MSP, and they all now understand that this battle is about MSP. And these three laws are standing in the way of their right to get MSP as a legal guarantee from the government. They all want to go to Delhi, you know, right from up to 1,200 miles away in Tamil Nadu. But guess what? The trains in this country are not working. There are only special trains, uh, very few and far between. So the government deliberately made these laws because they knew that they would not be able to face an uh, all India protest. And they are therefore saying and creating this narrative that this is a protest by Sikh farmers and Punjab only farmers. Why should the farmers of Punjab, who have had a better deal in the last 40 years, be at the forefront of the protest? And why would other farmers who are doing much worse than them not want to protest about price, right to get price, and a legal guarantee to get price? Any person will understand the logic of this. But the government continues to stick to this divisive narrative, and we are proving that wrong. On the borders of Punjab, a survey today will show you that almost 18 out of the 28 states of India are represented, maybe in token numbers. In some states, there are bigger numbers, like Maharashtra, where Bombay is. Uh, There could be somewhere between three to 5,000 farmers from that state. They all travel long distances, and they are part of the protest. Government is uh, completely wrong in trying to portray this as a protest only by the Sikh farmers. So... Over the past five years, nearly 140,000 Indian farmers have committed suicides. Many have been attributed to debt or poverty. The New York Times quoted a protester expressing a lack of fear of coronavirus, even though they were protesting, compared to their fear 
for a future under the new farming laws. To you, what explains why a protester would be more fearful of their future than a deadly pandemic? Uh, 350,000 farmers have lost their lives in the last 20 years. They've committed suicide, primarily because of debt. And where does this debt come from? There is completely uncontrolled, unregulated input costs, which promise great outputs. And when the farmer borrows money to invest in his uh, farm, and then he produces whatever crop he does, it could be cotton, it could be BT cotton, uh, he realizes that he's not being able to cover his cost, but his debt is chasing him. So finally, he finds a rope and hangs himself. This has been the condition of the farmers of India, as I said, for 20 years. The Indian Supreme Court was made aware of this. And all the court had to say is that this is a matter of policy of the government. And the judiciary can't do anything about it. So the farmers have always had a bad deal and uh, are fighting uh, this what we are seeing the protest today is not something that has happened right away. In 2017, six farmers in the state of Madhya Pradesh, which is ruled by BJP, were shot dead by the police for protesting about prices of their crops. They are garlic and onion growers. After that, AIKCC, an All India platform of 250 organizations now, farmers' organizations now, was formed. And in 2017, we held a very massive demonstration protest at the capital of India, Delhi. More than 300,000 farmers participated. 2018, we, we, the farmers' organization, created two laws, drafted two laws, and sent it to the Indian parliament for being enacted. One was a law for guaranteeing MSP, and the other was a law for a one-time freedom from indebtedness. Because our argument was, even if you announce correct prices and ensure that farmers get those prices, unless you wipe away their past debts, which have happened, not because they borrowed money carelessly, but because they didn't get price for their crops. Unless you do these two things together, you cannot put farmer and farming back into the mainstream. And uh, unless you focus on the producer as well as the production, instead of just focusing on the production that the government is doing presently, you will not have the producer left anymore. So in 2018, we sent these laws. We held another massive rally at Delhi. Pursuant, as soon as that happened, the Modi government announced a 6,000 rupee. That's not a big amount of money. That's less than $100 a year as a universal benefit for farmers. So pressure was on this government to understand the economic crisis being faced by the farmers. But this was the last thing we expected. You know, in short, what the government of Mr. Modi is saying is that, look, we know you are not getting prices for your crops. We know you should get prices for your crops. We know that we are supposed to be, the, as the government, responsible to ensure that this happens. But guess what? Because we can't do it, we are making a new law, which is in your welfare, so that Mr. Ambani and Adani become responsible for giving you the prices. They do not actually become responsible, but under the new law, there is an imaginary fairy tale situation where these hard nut businessmen will come, be kind and soft, and will purchase crops at right prices from the farmers and make these farmers rich and happy. This is the story. This is the dream. This is the rainbow that Mr. Modi has painted for the farmers. And thanks to the last three years of agitation, clear understanding, better articulation by farmers' organizations, the farmers were quick to reject it and say, sorry, 
we don't buy your dream. Give us the law that we want and take back your laws. So these are the two demands. Repeal these three laws that you brought. They are of no use to us. And make a law that makes MSP a guaranteed right for every farmer of every crop of India. BBC reports that the issue is that it's unclear how this will play out in reality. All of the negotiations for one, farmers can already sell to private players in many states, but what these bills do is offer a national framework. But farmers are mainly concerned that this will eventually lead to the end of wholesale markets and assured prices, leaving them with no backup option. That is, if they are not satisfied with the price offered by a private buyer, They cannot return to the Mandy system, the one that protects them right now, or use it as a bargaining chip during negotiations. So part of these ordinances is that once you join this privatized system, you can't go back to the old system that protects farmers. Can this new national framework of private players exist alongside the more traditional Mandy system that protects farmers, or would one undermine the other? Well, more than 60% of the agricultural produce is actually traded outside the Mandi system. The Mandi system takes care of only 23 crops for which the government announces MSP. The crop basket is more than 100. For example, apples, which are grown in Kashmir and come to right to the end of India in Madras, do not have to go through the Mandi system. We are not saying that private trade should be banned, even in a Monday, which is a regulated market. The government just plays referee. The trader who buys is private. The farmer who sells is private. But the government is refusing to play referee anymore. The government, which created this market so that farmers get the MSP that the government declares, is now sitting out and saying, we don't know. We are not going to be responsible for this market. Let the rich guys come and open private markets. And uh, guess what? We believe from the bottom of the hearts that these guys in these private markets will give you the best price, the much better prices that you're getting now. You see, the flaw in the argument is that it is the same private people who are operating in these mandis. The mandi system is perfect on paper. But it's terrible on ground and its implementation. That's where the government should have focused. And that's the law we made and presented to the government in 2018. But, uh, well, to give an example that's easy to understand, uh, there was this house that the farmers had, which had a leaky roof. And the farmers were complaining that when it rains, water comes in. So Mr. Modi just ripped off the roof and said, guess what, guys? Now you don't have a roof, so there's no question, no worry about uh, water leaking in. And you can see the sky. You have freedom. In fact, that's being touted politically. Farmers now have freedom. They are now unchained. So this house without a roof where you can see the stars is the freedom that Mr. Modi is offering farmers. That is incredible. Uh, BBC also quotes someone who they identify as an agricultural policy expert, Devendra Sharma, saying leaving farmers to the tyranny of the markets would be akin to putting the sheep before the wolf. There are leakages in the current system and it needs to be reformed, but replacing one failed model with another is not the solution. BBC concludes evidence from states where farmers haven't benefited even after wholesale markets were dismantled. Support Sharma's argument. There are no easy answers, but experts agree that in a country where agriculture employs so many millions, leaving farmers' fates the vagaries of the market cannot be the only answer. Did Prime Minister Modi run on the promise that this is exactly what he was going to do once in office? Because that often neoliberal reforms are not mentioned during campaigns and then they're instituted once a person is put in power. So I guess my question is, how popular is Modi's plan in India and was is this what he promised? Uh, Mr. Modi has had occasion to present two manifestos to this country. In 2014, the manifesto he presented promised the farmers uh, 1.5 times their total cost of cultivation. 
This is called the C2 plus 50% formula, which was given by a commission, the National Commission on Farmers, which submitted its report in 2006. That's 14 years, 16 years ago. And they said that farmers must get, must get this price for their crops, otherwise it's just not, uh, doesn't make any sense for them otherwise. So that's the promise Mr. Modi made. Uh, he has not fulfilled it. But today, when you ask him, he says, I am giving one and a half times the cost of uh, cultivation. He fails to mention that that cost is a inconclusive cost. It's called the A2 plus FL cost. So here is the Prime Minister of India, one of the most consummate performers who can look into your eye and lie with such equanimity that you will not know the difference between truth and untruth. So this was his first uh, performance with the farmers. And the farmers know it, that Mr. Modi has not given the uh, C2 plus 50% price. In 2019, the second time he presented a manifesto and won, he did not talk about farm reforms. The laws that are now being put up, he did not speak about them at all. In fact, it's amusing that the main opposition party, the Indian National Congress, in their manifesto, said that when we come to power, we will bring in agricultural reforms. Many of the things that Mr. Modi has put into this law are there in the Congress manifesto, but the BJP manifesto was completely silent on farm reforms. However, the Congress manifesto, while speaking of reforms, and no farmer organization is against reform, the only question that we ask is, who is this reform for? And what will this reform do? Those are questions which Mr. Modi is refusing to answer. Those are questions which he says, leave it to me, have faith in me, believe in your religion, and God will bring in all the relief that you want. So that's not acceptable. Al Jazeera has reported that the Bharatiya Kisan Union or Indian Farmers Union argued that the laws were arbitrary. The laws, the ordinances that Modi was trying to impo impose were arbitrary because they were enacted without proper consultations with the stakeholders, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation. So what is the likelihood? What is the possibility that the laws, the ordinances will be thrown out as illegal, unconstitutional or as the charges here, arbitrary? Uh, India has a federal structure of government. There are state governments and the central government. The state government, the, the laws that the state government can make are given in the Constitution of India. It's called uh, List 3. The laws on which the state governments and the central governments can make are in List 2. And the laws on which only the central government, uh, and the, the laws that only the central government can make are given in List 1. Agriculture is clearly a subject in the state list. Mr. Modi had no right to make these laws in the first place, excepting one law where he's amended the grain storage uh, restrictions. Uh, he did not have uh, the right to make the other two laws. But uh, this is clear. There's not much debate on this at all, actually, legal debate. But uh, the Supreme Court of India, in, uh, you know, before which these laws have been challenged, whether they will see what is plain and simple to see, it's a very difficult question to answer. And uh, unless I'm ready to con commit contempt of court and go to jail, I don't know how to answer that question. All right. So let us not have you answer that question. I don't want you to get in any more trouble. We have been speaking with lawyer and farmer activist Avik Saha, National General Secretary of Swaraj, India, a political party whose mission is to usher in probity, transparency, and accountability in electoral politics. You can follow Swaraj India on Twitter at underscore Swaraj India. Avik is also national convener of Jai Kisan Andalan and All India Farmers and Farm Workers Organization. You can follow them on Twitter at underscore Jai Kisan Andalan. Avik is also organizing secretary of All India Kisan Sangarsh. 
Coordination Committee, an all-India platform of farmers and farm worker organizations. You can find out more about that group at AIKSCC on Twitter. That's AIKSCC on Twitter. And you can follow Avik on Twitter at Avik Saha India. One last question for you, Avik. And what we do, that I promise, we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, and our audience is going to hate your response. And I tell you, Avik, I'm going to hate asking this question. What impact would Modi's proposals have on farmer debt and poverty, the kind of poverty and debt that leads to an epidemic of farmer suicides. What will happen when it comes to the number of farmer suicides, in your opinion, if Modi's proposals are put completely into action? I don't think the number of suicides will go up. Most farmers will have to quit farming the way the things are structured now. They will have to find alternative livelihoods. Very, very meager, you know, almost uh, you know, survival level livelihoods. But one thing that will happen is, since they will no more be in the business of farming, you know, incurring debt to farm a crop and then losing that money, so perhaps suicides will go down. That could be one bright side of this. But going forward, I don't even see India having so many menial, you know, subhuman jobs available. So we are looking at a mass exodus of people from the villages into the cities to become pavement dwellers, to become utterly poor. So this is a formula for a nightmare. And it's a reminder of Mike Davis's book from back in the mid-2000s, Planet of Slums, which he said exactly, this is exactly what was going to happen. Avik, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. Thank you so much. This has really been an honor and a pleasure. And again, condolences to your family. And thank you so much for rescheduling with us. Again, thanks for being on our show today. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure for me, too. All right. I'm going to bug you in the future to have you back on the show as things progress. I'd love to be there anytime. All right. Thank you, Avik. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are answering the question so far. Philip A. says, the White New Deal. (laughs) And the winner is. Do we have to answer any more of these? There's some other good ones. Uh, (laughs) Kim G. says, Mr. Bill. Ladio says, guns, and I can't believe it's not butter. Josh L. says, two jobs should be enough. Brought to you by Uber in memory of RGB. Or RBG. Wait, Ruth Bader. RBG. Yeah, RBG. Okay. Thomas K. says, shh, go back to sleep act. <laughs> Craig S. says, the William Bill. Warnell says, the billionaires got theirs act. Chris H. says, the dung and death act. Aaron B. says, beautiful bootstraps. <laughs> Fabio Well says, no alternative mandatory bill like always. So I'm trying to invest in a bootstrap factory right now. See, though. no alternative. N-A-M-B-L-A. Oh, I wonder if that website's hard to get. Uh, Christian H. says the Affordable Labor Supply Act. is very good. Disposable labor would be good, too. Uh, Mike C. says Austerity Bill is the worst morning zoo radio DJ name ever. <laughs> Uh, Isla C says, let them eat cake, of course, or let them eat cake act, of course. These crumbs ought to be enough for all of us. Sean M says, funding America under conservatism initiatives, the Fauci Act. Uh, David S says, the Economic Aid to Send Help in Time Act, a.k.a. the E A T S H. Delete the show. Okay. Uh, John T says, Biden's Build Back Better Butter Bother Bill. <laughs> Nikki says the Republican, the Republican Beneficence and Empathy Bill. <laughs> That's very good. And uh, Krumsky K says the Play Act Act. Again, the question from Mal is what are they going to name the austerity bill? What are they going to name the austerity bill? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. That's currently available at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. Special thanks to those of you who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support. 
over the last few weeks. Thanks to Michael S. and Nick E. Thanks so much for your very kind donations. And thanks again to Michael and Nick. Thanks to all of you for checking out all the ways you can support This Is Hell by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. It's time for Nasty, Gnarly, Nauseous, Nerdy, Naughty, Icky, Drippy, Sticky, Goopy, Gloppy, Globby, Gory, Rotten History, January 11th, 1693. 328 years ago today, Monday, Italy suffered its most powerful earthquake in recorded history, estimated at 7.4 in magnitude, with an epicenter not far from Syracuse on Sicily's eastern coast. The uh, quake destroyed some 70 cities and towns, not only in Sicily, but also Calabria, the toe of the Italian boot, and in the Mediterranean islands of Malta. Some 60,000 people died in landslides and building collapses and in the tsunami that followed. The quake was so powerful that major aftershocks were felt for at least three years, which I've never heard of before, but I don't live in an area that has had a major earthquake since the mid-17th, 18th century, whenever that one happened in Cahokia. None of which, none of that leaves me any space to make any wry, witty, or even snarky remarks. Remarks, but it does leave me wondering exactly how susceptible, how vulnerable southern Italy and the Mediterranean is to earthquakes. Is, is Italy due for another earthquake? I, uh-huh. In Rotten History, January 11th, 1917, 104 years ago, also today, Monday, in the tops, toxic dump that is the Meadowlands of New Jersey, so you know this will not end well. In the Meadowlands of New Jersey, fire broke out, yikes, at a British-Canadian-owned munitions factory that was supplying the European allies in World War I, though the United States was still officially neutral. Mm, not very neutral, though. The fire was in a building where more than a half million rounds of large ammunition were stored, along with tanks of gasoline used in cleaning shell casings, which you would think would be kept very far away from live ammunition. Some 1,400 workers acutely aware of the likely outcome, in other words, they knew they were working in unsafe, if not deadly, working conditions, fled in terror and managed to escape before the building erupted in a series of explosions that continued for the next four hours, terrifying the locals, destroying homes and businesses, paralyzing railway traffic, and providing a spectacular fireworks show for people in New York City, some seven miles away. Miraculously, no one was killed. The explosion was attributed to German sabotage in a lawsuit that went unresolved until... 1979. So, wait a second. German sabotage of a U.S. munitions facility that was holding Canadian-made munitions to be illegally shipped to England for deployment against the Germans in World War I, and somehow, somehow, this is yet to be made into a movie by Tom Hanks. Finally, in Rotten History, January 12, 1967, 54 years ago tomorrow, Tuesday, Dr. James Bedford of University of California, a psychologist who would not accept the inevitable, died of metastatic kidney cancer at age 73. He became the first person to have his body deep frozen in the hope that future medical science might someday revive and cure him. At an initial cost of $100,000 provided in his will, which in $2020 is equivalent to about $800,000 today, Dr. Bedford was injected with dimethyl sulfoxide, impact in dry ice, then moved to a unit where he was deep frozen in liquid nitrogen. I assume he was already dead. In the following years, he was moved around to various facilities in California and Arizona. An examination in 1991 concluded that though his body looked relatively intact, as good as Lennon's. His brain was probably decayed beyond repair, as decayed as Lennon's. Even so, Dr. Bedford remains deep frozen to this day. The same can't be said for some other cryogenic clients, such as several in the 1970s who were accidentally thawed out in the so-called Chatsworth disaster, which ended in horrible stench and expensive lawsuits. Other corpses were thawed out and buried or cremated after families failed to keep up with payments or when preservation facilities went out of business. Who knew that time and capitalism would ruin humanity's feeble plans for immortality? But even though mainstream experts consider the practice a form of medical quackery, the bodies or heads of some two to three hundred dead people remain uh, deep frozen today in hope of future resuscitation, as was explained and depicted in the documentary series Futurama. Among the frozen heads is one of the greatest power hitters of all time, the Splendid Splinter. 
former Boston Red Sox left fielder and complete prick Ted Williams, who after his death in 2002 was put in deep freeze by his son against Teddy Ballgame's own previously stated wish to be cremated, but the popular claim that filmmaker Walt Disney was frozen after his death, that's just an urban legend, thankfully, because if there's one thing we do not need right now, considering all the tumultuous times we live in, the one thing we don't need is zombie Walt Disney walking the planet. That's rotten and creepy history, and this is hell. Alex, please tell us who is on tomorrow's Tuesday's show, also beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Uh, writer Andreas Malm is back on the show to talk about his new book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, Learning to Fight in a World on Fire. Really looking forward to having him on for the third time. I am betting in that book there is no actual description of how to blow up a pipeline. What do you think? I think it's all I think it's how you'd start the book. Yeah. Let's find out. I think it's theoretical. I think it, uh, there's... Because uh, we could just have the author of the Anarchist Cookbook on the show. Oh, wait. He's dead. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's show. Thank you so much, Alex Jerry. Thanks to Avik Saha for being our guest. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>